Hello, bookworms. Welcome to The Best Book Ever, the podcast where I get to know interesting people by asking them about their favorite books. I'm your host, Julie Strauss, and today I'm talking to Jeremy Patlin. Take a deep breath now. Maybe you want to have a seat for this. The director of book buying for Colorado's world-famous tattered cover bookstore. I know! I am still freaking out. Jeremy and I had a great time talking about the bookstore life, the artist's life, and he even convinced me to listen to opera. All of these topics derived from the tender and sad and beautiful memoir, Just Kids, by Patti Smith, which Jeremy chose as his best book ever. Hi, Jeremy. Welcome to the Best Book Ever podcast. Morning. Thanks for having me, Julie. I'm so excited to talk to you because you work at what I call a destination bookstore, one of my favorite bookstores on the planet, Yay. One, of my, one of my bucket list bookstores, which I have been fortunate to visit multiple times. Oh. But before we actually get to that, your bookstore life, I want to ask you about reading in general in your life. How did you become a reader? Um, I don't remember. I always had a book in my hand. I would always rather be reading. Um, I grew up in a uh, in a family in northern New Jersey, and um, uh, only four of us, but we can create some volume. And um, <laughs> I never, as a kid, I was smaller. I was more reserved. I I don't know. I loved going to school. I didn't want to play sports, and I just I would always rather be reading. And I remember having, you know, being a little kid, just trying to understand Shakespeare or reading the newspaper at the table. And I don't know, just always loved it. So, Were your parents readers? Yeah, totally. My mom always had. Um, she had a. I remember in the in that bedroom there was a a wall sized bookshelf. And she was always reading. She still does all the time. We, we trade books, you know, as regularly as we can across the country. But my okay. dad always liked monster books and vampires and horror and sci-fi. And, well, not quite sci-fi. Um, and my mom was a lot of fiction. What kind of reader are you in your free time now? That's a very good question. Because <laughs> with, with books as my job, it's never quite free time. Um but I do really prefer to read good fiction. I love literary fiction. I can read some trashy fiction. I love, um, I'm, I really look right now for queer authors to try to understand what's going on in the, in the world. Um, but also with my job, I've got to make sure that I'm reading a completely representative arc of books out there. So I know what to recommend to our customers and what to bring into the store. Tell so. my listeners what your job is. I'm the director of buying at the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Um, oh, I just yeah, got no, it's bumps. <laughs> <laughs> me too. I it, it's it's it, how it happened is circuitous and long, and we don't really need to go into all the details. But um, I love it. I find myself incredibly fortunate to be in a job that I care passionately about. And um, I've been working at the bookstore for about six years, and uh, at bookstores for about ten or so in general. Um, the first job I had in one was managing the coffee shop at McNally Jackson in New York City, where I lived most of my adult life. And then we decided to move to Denver in about 2016. And that's when I discovered the tattered cover and started working there as a bookseller, then managed the coffee shops and then came back when another when a buying job opened up. And then that's evolved into my current position. So your your clients who your customers who come in, do they mm-hmm. tend to be 
looky-loos or do, do you get real book lovers? Because I know it's considered a destination. Yeah, all over the place. Um, we have people that come in certainly to our Colfax store where you come and browse. It's mm-hmm. too big to, you know, to just, but we have people that come in, go right to the shelf, pick the two books that they're looking for and, and leave. We, we, we do see trends with, you know, what, what authors sell better at, at what stores. Um, what's fascinating right now is that we have a store at McGregor Square that we opened up back in uh, May, I believe, after we closed our Lodo store back in March. Um, real estate conversation, rent too high, blah, blah, blah. We had a better deal. And we went to a slightly smaller space, but in a brand new building. I mean, the, the store is gorgeous. Um, and the customer is pretty different than it was four blocks away. And I think it has something to do with, um, well, we're right across the street from Coors Field and we're mm-hmm. in a new residential complex with a big hotel in it. So we're getting a lot more people traveling from all across the country. And there's a bookstore right downstairs from their hotel. So they're popping in. It might not be a couple blocks away and they wouldn't know we're there. So it's it's, it's really fascinating. Uh, traditionally, our Aspen Grove store had a more conservative customer in the southern suburbs than this, the big city store of Cherry Creek does. Um, but that's not to say that that customer doesn't exist within the same spheres, but we do buy differently for all of our different stores. It's fun. It's a puzzle. And it's a conversation that always, always evolves. That's the other thing I really like about your stores is your, that I have met your employees are not, um, they're not just sales clerks, you know, not at all, not at all. Many times I have gone to your employees and said, what was the last great book you read? And they, their faces light up and they will take you to a back corner and go, okay, this one. (laughs) It's so fun. It it never, I'm continually amazed by the depth and breadth of knowledge by our bookselling, by the entire staff of the store, actually. Uh, we turned 50 this year. So we have, a, we've had a lot of people that still work back of house that have worked at the company for a long time. Um, and just the, the things you learn on a daily basis and speaking with, especially with, well, I shouldn't say especially, but, and in speaking with the booksellers on the floor, everybody's got an opinion. Mm-hmm. Everybody reads. And for the most part, you don't work, you don't choose to work in an independent bookstore, you know, earning the vast sums that we all do. Um, <laughs> Just because it's a it, it's an available job, you work in a most people that work in a bookstore do it because they love. We love what we sell, right? Mm. We love reading. We 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 want to be around them. There's a feeling and an open discourse in bookstores that doesn't exist in in many other lines of work. One of the big projects I, I'm trying to work on, you know, with all our free time, is to really <laughs> revitalize our shelf talker program because that's where you find out what the staff feels. And when I interview people for a new job, the first question I ask routinely is when you walk into a new bookstore and you don't know anything about it, what's the first section you go to? And for me, it's the shelf talker section. What are the staff recommends? Like, what does the staff read? What does this store believe in? And because that's, that, that's, well, that's where the interest is, I find, for the store. And um, we're doing some really fun things. I mean, it, nothing revolutionary, but we're really trying to um, uplift staff recommends. Mm -hmm. And from a buying side, we're really trying to, um, to, to, to choose books as our book of the month, books of the month, and then consequently, consequently our books of the year. 
um, just books that we love for whatever reason, not because the publishers are pushing it or not because they're bestsellers. But that the one, the one real caveat that I had when I sent out the request was, was it, did it publish in 2021? And do you love it? And there are some big, big books going on there, you know, from, you know, big releases over the year. I mean, um, Intimacies uh, by Katie Kitamura and, and Jhumpa Lahiri's um, Whereabouts, Blue, Me, Away this year. Those are big releases with a lot of press. But then there are also some smaller, um, smaller books that came out that also, you know, really, really enjoyed. Another one coming out, I think in November is one called Comfort Me with Apples. It, that's an old one, isn't it? Comfort Me with Apples? The Ruth Reichel book? No, Comfort Me oh. with Apples by Catherine M. Valente is her name. Oh. Um, Save Me the Plums was Ruth Reichel, because that was a great read. But uh, yes, it was. But I think I think her first... Was it called Comfort Me? Called... Was it the exact same? I think so. I'm, I'm looking it up right now. You're absolutely correct. It is the exact same. How interesting. And I love that. So I'm I'm a fan of memoirs. And what I love, it was either with that one or Save Me the Plums, where in her introduction, maybe it was with Comfort Me with Apples, where she said, you know, these are my stories and these are my memories. They might not be exactly as they happen, but that's how I this is how I remember them. Yeah. And it's 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 very, very uh I love, I really appreciate that admission when, when I read that. Yes. So there's a new one that's coming out, you said, in... Yes. It's a, I, I don't know if it's considered sci-fi horror or, uh, or uh, some kind of a fantasy, but it's a, it's, a, it's a shorter book, but a pretty special one. Uh, I, I love that it has the same title because it almost makes you think maybe it's going to be a little bit of a riff, like a jazz riff. On I wonder if there is going to be some food talk in this sci-fi comfort me with apples mm-hmm. oh there is a little bit yeah <laughs> okay so, i'm gonna read it's an one. old story it's an old old story with a very new retelling an old is it a snow white it i i, I it would be a spoiler okay and okay. that's the thing because it's um hold on i think i have it right here actually Ooh, that looks spooky what a cover one of my favorite things, one of my te- uh, our team's favorite things to do, like we judge books by their covers. So yes. we get these boxes of arcs that come in and you can sometimes. And that cover, I, there are a number of books over the years. I was like, oh, I want to read that. And, yeah, that's yeah. very intriguing. Whether they read a book a day or a book a year, I love asking people to tell me about their favorite books. And that includes you, dear listener. What's your all-time favorite? Your desert island classic? What about the childhood favorite that you still know by heart? The mystery that took you by surprise? The biography that changed your way of thinking? Or the book club favorite that you can't stop thinking about? I'm looking for guests from all walks of life to talk to me about all kinds of books here on the show. Go to my website, juliewroteabook.com, and click on the button that says, Be a Guest on the Best Book Ever. I'm really looking forward to talking to you. Now, back to the show. So, Jeremy, tell me, how did you first come across this book that you uh, chose as your best book ever, Just Kids by Patti Smith? 
My late great friend Ruth gave it to me one year for either Christmas or my birthday. And um, she was magnificent in a word. I met her, uh, oh, I guess she was in her late 60s and I was a recent college graduate in my early 20s and we were introduced by a mutual friend. And I remember the first time we met, she asked me how old I was and she said, they still make people that age. And uh, we... And she became my New York City Auntie Maine in a lot of ways. She was a, uh, she had, you know, like most interesting people, three, four different lifetimes over the course of her life. Again, I met her when she was in her late 60s. And uh, I believe uh, this was in about 1996 or seven or eight or somewhere in that time frame. And she had the Upper East Side apartment that was covered in art. Her career was in art. She under, she knew artists. Um, all over the city. She had received her doctorate, I believe, from the School of Fine Arts in New York City um, after a divorce in the 1980s. And that's when she made her own money in the art world. And so to hear all of these stories from her over the years was, was just fascinating. And we became very, very, very good friends for, the, uh, for quite a long time. Um, sadly, she passed um, recently. Oh, I'm sorry. But, oh, uh, she had a, a, a long and really historic life. Um, I mean, she lived in London in the 1970s and had a black living room with a red racing stripe that was featured in Architectural Digest. Like she had these stories and met these people. And I had always been an an artistic person, but I was working in business at the time. I was working in retail at a um, off-price retail office job. I mean, spreadsheets, blah, blah, numbers, blah, 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 blah. (laughs) And it was such a great outlet for me to go to galleries with her and go to museums with someone who knew about all of these things and taught me. I'm also a photographer, have always kind of had a camera in hand and taking pictures and creating. um, And that's been my main medium over the years. And um, one year at Christmas, she, uh, either Christmas or my birthday, they're both in the winter, birthdays in February. Um, she gave me this book and she said, something tells me you're going to love this. And I, I just, it blew me away. And it, um, not to sound trite, but um, I mentioned I had worked in business, numbers, numbers, numbers. And at this point in my life, I was somewhere in my late thirties and I was miserable. I hated it. I had never questioned it. Um, I went to Middlebury College in in rural Vermont, and I was a French literature major there back in the day. And so I went from that. And after college, I kind of I kind of assumed I was going to go do some kind of grad school and go the academic route. But it never panned out that way. I wound up living in New York all these years, found a job, met a boy, blah blah blah, and life happened. And and I didn't really question it until I was in about my mid to late thirties and just was miserable in my job and didn't have a vocabulary to describe it. And then I read this book and within the next year, within a year of reading it, this was one of the things that gave me the courage to walk away from my corporate life and try something that was going to make me happy. Wow. That's quite the effect of a book. Yeah. I mean, some people, a lot of people thought I was brave. I was a little bit foolish, but um, I had had a, um, a small side hustle for as a photographer, family photo shoots, weddings, things like that. And I was doing okay with it. And I was like, okay, I can focus on that now. And, you know, I had, 
I, I, not to be tacky and we, we know we, we don't talk about money, but I, I got my annual bonus and it was enough for me to live off of for a couple of months without working and say, okay, I have this amount of money. I can pay my credit card. I can pay my rent, pay food and not change my life for a couple of months. And then um, let's, let's focus on the photography and thank God I had my wonderful husband's support. And um, I took a couple of weeks off for the first time as an adult, you know, like just didn't do anything. And then of course, when your entire life is structured, it's really hard to create that when you don't know what you're doing. And so after about two months of, it was like two months of, well, anxiety, wallowing, working, trying to not know, not knowing what to do. I was like, Hmm, I need a part-time job. And that's when, uh, through connection, I had got an interview at McNally Jackson and started working there of all places. And then the rest is history. Why don't you describe what this book is about for my listeners who perhaps haven't come across it yet? This book is about life, love, art, and dedication. Hmm. And I don't know how else to say it. It's it's so simplistic, but the and beauty. How can I forget beauty? Because despite yes. everything that happened to both of these main protagonists, my God, is there a sense of beauty to both of their lives and purpose and almost an innate goodness in a way to both of them that you would never necessarily understand just from their art. But when you look into it, both their people and their art, it makes total sense. From my entire sort of education and upbringing and my own education in art, Robert Maplethorpe was always one of the most extraordinary figures. I mean, as a queer photographer, I was like, (laughs) you know, when I first saw this stuff back in the day, I was blown away by it on every level. And then, you know, the first time I ever heard Patty Smith's line, you know, for, from the opening of Gloria, Jesus died for somebody's sins, but not mine. It's like, <laughs> yes, <laughs> yes. And I grew up in a pretty Catholic household in, in northern New Jersey in a predominantly Italian-American family. And, you know, just we went to church on Sunday and that's what I went to a Catholic high school and, you know, raised super Catholic. And then I never knew until I read this book of their shared connection. Because each of, I, I really liked both of their work, but didn't know much about their personal stories. And then um, to hear it or to read it written with such dignity and grace and beauty, but also that punk just fuck it, you know, <laughs> this is what it is that, that, yes. that makes us love Patty Smith so much. She was always a little scary to me. Oh, totally. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and this book to me is so tender and the title just kids is so perfect because reading it at my age at 52, I kept, Uh they are, they're just, they're just kids. No, I'm, I'm 47. I understand. I think of myself at that age. As you have reread this in these days, do you go back Mm -hmm. and look at their art again and, and reconsider it after reading this book? Oh, of course I did. I've, I've been rereading it over the past week, you know, for our conversation. Mm-hmm. And um, on one side of my desk, I had Patty Smith. And on the other side, I had my <laughs> Robert Maplethorpe photo book. Um, you know, the, the big tome called The Photographs, I believe. She says at one point, when she looks at the pictures of her taken by him, by Robert mm-hmm. Maplethorpe, she doesn't see herself. She sees the two of them. They're, they're 
bond is so fascinating and beautiful. And it, it is. And, and that's the, the, that's why this whole book works so well, you know, that they had that bond and she had the, what, and what I keep obsessing over is how little they had, how little they kept, especially Patty Smith, Mm-hmm. And that she clearly, in her most treasured books that she talked about, kept her journals and her diaries. And she kept records of all of these years. From a photographer's point of view, I've often said, and I find this, this was clearly part of his genius, especially in portraiture, my photographs of people are only as good as my session or my relationship with them. Another thing that I thought about, and I don't, I don't remember where I read this, or I doubt I came up with it, but the word photography, the the, the Greek, um, you know, the roots of the word, uh-huh. writing with light, oh, and so gosh. you can't create a photo in the absence of light, and so what when especially with still life, it matters greatly what you place where, where you place the light, where the shadows are coming from, what's highlighted. What's not? It's amazing how much you can you can you can draw. You can write with light. I did not know that you were a New Yorker or former New Yorker. So mm-hmm. this this now I really want to ask you this. Um, the book is so evocative of New York. It's got to be one of the reasons why I love it too. You yeah. Uh, well, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, but given the internet has democratized so much of what we have access to, but do you think it has also destroyed those artistic communities? Do you think there are any places that still have that vibrant concentrated areas of artists anymore? Or, or do you think it's just all people can live anywhere and be an artist in any suburb? I've never thought about it in that lens, but I would be, it would no. I, I I don't know. There's there's a part of me that believes that when you're with your community and when you when you're with your people, you have a much freer exchange of information and creative juice flow, so to speak, than you do in your own little bubble out in the suburbs. Sure, mm-hmm. you can be connected, but you're not sitting over a canvas together. You're not in the same room taking photographs of each other. You're not smoking weed and taking your shirts off and painting on each other and seeing what happens when you put paper on that. And, you know, I know Patty Smith moved out to the far Rockaways in New York and had a little beach shack or like a smaller house out by the, uh, in the Rockaways. And I, I don't remember the quote exactly when I might be wrong. So please let's verify this, but she said a number of years ago, um, New York is dead for the artist for, for young artists. It's no longer really feasible. Go to Pittsburgh, go to Detroit, go to other cities. Being there in those years when you have the creative flow and you work at places and like, oh, let's talk about this. And then a coworker says, oh, I, let, let, let's collaborate on this and let's take some photos. And, yeah. you know, or a friend of mine was like, hey, I need headshots for this play that I'm doing, which leads to other things. And you need that concentrated, that, that, that concentrated artistic community is a, is a symbiotic relationship and it's its own kind of, uh, kind of atmosphere or, or what's the word I'm looking for uh, ecosystem yes. where you know you it's that creative energy that, that that connects people no matter what the medium there yeah. is a very I 
I did not flag it, but there is a very specific moment in here where she's, I think she's talking about Janis Joplin and she says mm-hmm. something. And then she even, Patty Smith even makes the comment. So that happened in front of me, but I was 20. I didn't notice or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And yeah. it boggled my mind. Uh-huh. You were sitting there with the giants and you yeah. were also a giant yourself. But she was so wrapped up in her own thoughts. In her, her, her yes, own, exactly. Yeah, yeah, That's what yeah, she yeah, says. Yeah, She's yeah. thinking about her love life, as we uh-huh. all are when we're mm-hmm. 20. <laughs> but you're right. Then she took that conversation and brought it into her own work. And it it um, it couldn't have happened if she and Janis Joplin were Facebook messaging each other. It no. would not be the same work. No, no, it wouldn't. I really love the ability for me to work from home from time to time. Sure. But I prefer working with my team in the office. But I I really feel like we're moving away from that. And it's going to be really interesting to see where the art world goes. Yeah. And they've been talking, you know, in the newspapers, they were talking for years, like Berlin was the new city in art, you know, and all the new things um, in the early aughts. And now, you know, they're talking about Kiev kind of being the new version of Berlin from kind of a... There was, a, there was a fascinating piece in the New York Times last weekend about it's like the pandemic party capital. And they don't want to be known as the new Berlin because, you know, we're Kiev, we're not Berlin. But kind of that that center has always moved around. Are there any American cities that are open like that, do you think, that are very artistically inclined? I mean, Denver, Denver has its fair share, wouldn't you say? We do. We do. We have uh, lots of galleries, but Denver is not cheap. A couple of years ago, you know, you were able to rent a two, three bedroom apartment for a thousand dollars or a two bedroom apartment for a thousand a month. And a one bedroom is 500 a month. And you can have a job at a bookstore and pay your rent and have a decent life. You know, you might not be able to go to Europe every year, but you'd be able to, to afford life and be happy mm-hmm. and be calm. And that's what I find that I, as an artist, what I need is a sense of security. And um, ironically enough, that's one of the things Robert Maplethorpe wanted to do. Yeah. You know, he needed that financial security. I, if I can't pay my rent, I'm not going to be able to create. You know, it's not going to, you know, creating art under pressure that generally doesn't, you know, bode well, well for me personally. Were there any particular stories in this that hit you especially hard? Yeah, it, it really, I mean, there are so many moments of it it, it just takes your breath away either from the beauty of the writing or the devastation of what's happening um his dying of AIDS oh god that last paragraph that makes me that you know (laughs) um that it's very difficult for me to read as a gay man of a certain generation Mm -hmm. that came out at the tail end of the AIDS crisis in the middle to late. I came out in 1993. It was a very different time than now. I remember sections of, I'm that bridge generation, just at the very end of it, you know, people were still dying, but new drugs were becoming available. But it was still scary as hell. And it still really bothers me. And it's, it's not comfortable for me to read that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It really brings home what we have lost in terms of a generation of artists. My goodness. Yeah. Because all an Robert entire Maple generation. Thorpe, an entire generation. Gone. And what if he were 
alive and Patti Smith's age, God only knows what he would have done mm-hmm. artistically. And I don't know that that's something we've reckoned with no, as, as I, a country, that we have literally lost a generation of men who no, are not no. producing the art that we, sh- we, by rights as a culture, we should have this art. And of course, it was incredibly politicized. Yes. Yeah. You know, it took Reagan how many years just to admit that it was going on, and then it was stigmatized, and it still it still is in many quarters. Well, what about you? You mentioned there were a couple of moments that. Well, her last the fact that she had her last interactions with both Jimi Hendrix and Janis Joplin, literally right, right. before they both died. Yes. And they were both such tender and sweet and kind. Mm-hmm. The one with Jimi Hendrix just brought me to tears. And I'm not a huge Jimi Hendrix fan, but it that was another one that just made me go, God damn it. Why don't we get these people? Why couldn't Jimi mm-hmm. Hendrix live to his 90s? No, and 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 that 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 aspiration to create a new language based on music and peace, like to have those thoughts and then to die before even being able to, I mean, again, uh, I agree with you. I'm not the biggest fan of a lot of music from that age. Just the the sound of it. It's, Mm -hmm. It's not what I've listened to over the years. There's no doubting his musical genius and what he would have been able to accomplish all these years later? Right. Good God. It's yeah. when we lose artists, I feel like we really lose, we lose a, a, a lung almost of our culture. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's and we, we did, so... we lost a generation, in the, especially yeah. in the art world in New York City, which at the time was creating most of the newer art in the yeah. country. But it's devastating to think about. So but. have you, you have not read any of her poetry? Oh, I have. I, I, I've, you have. Um, no, and I've read some subsequent works of hers as well. Um, Wool Gatherings, I have. Uh, M Train. Oh, that was a devastatingly sad book, but that was you know, her, her reflections on her late husband. Um, oh. And uh, my understanding of it, anyway. And uh, what's the other great one? Um, I, Devotions was also a wonderful Patty Smith read. Uh, I have. Yeah. No experience with their poetry at all, but now yeah. after reading this, I really, I do, and I'm not yeah. much of a poetry reader, but I nor am I. I would like her. Yeah. yeah, I love so I loved poetry. Um, in high school, of all things, I remember loving re- having to really? read poems for school, but then kind of college kind of destroyed me with it. I was a French literature major, and the French school of studying poetry back in the day. I remember having to write papers and count syllables and sometimes letters and, you know, really analyze it to the point of not enjoying it anymore, where I just wanted to read it for the beauty of the language. And so it got me off of it for a while, but over the past, I've been dipping into some more poetry over the past couple of years. And it's, there's some fascinating stuff. There's some really beautiful work coming out. And this book makes you want to pick up other books and understand how artists draw from each other. And especially musicians in my mind. Because, you know, lyrics are a form of poetry. I mean, how do you define poetry, right? Um, I, I actually don't, I've never thought about that. Like, what's the, defin- the 
if you go to the dictionary, what's the definition for poetry? I don't know. But for me, it's sort of, you know, using language to tell a story that's not necessarily in a linear and grammatical form, right? You you have absolute freedom with your words, with how, where you can put them on a page, with the order of your, your syntax, and you can move everything around and create kind of a new language. And then for songs, you accentuate that with music. And then you get into one of my, my true loves in life, which is actually opera of all things. How'd you get into that? The same. So the friend that introduced me to my friend, Ruth, his name is John, that gave, Ruth gave me this book, introduced me to opera when I was in college. He was a professor. He invited me over for dinner one night. I said, what is this we're listening to? He's like, it's Aida. I said, okay, tell me more. And um, I went to my first performance at the Metropolitan Opera in like, uh, October oh about God. 1997. It went over 200 times in the years that I lived there. Oh my yeah, that was God. Very, well, if you sat upstairs three feet from God in the really cheap seats for a while, like the, the seats were 25 bucks a pop. And so for that, yeah, you're in a 4,000 seat theater. You need binoculars to see the stage, but Jesus Christ, that sound is fucking beautiful up there. Oh, and if you're sitting you. right in the middle at the top at Carnegie Hall as well, it's like you're wearing headphones to the stage. There's this insane thing that happens. And um, yeah, to hear those unamplified voices, um, you know, cresting sometimes a hundred piece orchestra with poetry and stories do you feel that you need to know it well before you go to the opera? It is an incredibly great question. And my absolute answer is no, you don't need to do anything be- before going into it in depth. It helps to know a little bit of the plot. The more you know about opera, the more you tend to enjoy it because it's at its base, it's live theater. And so you have a you have very few people around the world that can actually sing these roles in a way to be able to sing them on the main stages of the world. And so you have, and it's, there is, there are new pieces that come out, but there is a standard repertory. And so you'll have the same singer that's singing Aida here and a different singer singing it in Chicago or New York or Paris, or the same singer singing that same role over the course of a 20, 30, 40 year career with different understandings of the role over different parts of their lives. And so it's really fascinating to compare and contrast. And I like this person's voice better. And it's the more, you know, the more you tend to enjoy it. And that's where the obsessive fandom comes into play. But if you were going to go to your first opera and see it, there are, there are certainly operas I would recommend more than others, because for me, a five and a half hour, five hour night at the Met of, you know, slow plotting, very like Don Carlo, I, I want more. And then a lot of people are like, okay, I'm falling asleep. I'm tired of this. But if you start someone on a shorter two and a half to three hour night, like a Puccini's La Boheme or Madame Butterfly with a much more understandable story and the swelling orchestra and all the emotions, that's how you, that it would be much more uh, easily palatable and digested. Um, you know, but then there are like 90 minute shockers, like Rickard Strauss's Salome. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of the plots are, you know, sex, power, murder. Why are, mm-hmm. why do these, st- why do these stories still matter? Sometimes hundreds of years after they've written, been written. And I think that the, the plots sort of speak to a deeper human truth or an emotion that is easily translated across ages in different story frames. Well, let me ask you, um, 
what are you reading these days? Um, I, right now I'm listening to My Heart is a Chainsaw by Stephen Graham Jones. He's um, a local, um, I think I, Stephen Graham Jones is his name. He he lives in Colorado um, and it's, I, I don't know his other work. He, a lot of my coworkers love it and I've started listening to this and I love it. It's kind of a, a slasher flick in a novel. Yeah, I've seen it, but I'm a little scared of it. Is it a scary book? It is, but it's really good. I've been listening to it. So um, I'm one of those insufferable distance runners and I'm training for a marathon now. And so when I have two, three hours to run, sometimes I listen to music, which is all over the board. But oftentimes they're like, oh, let me get through a chunk of a novel. And it's a good one to run to. Um, So I'm listening to that. Harlem Shuffle and Beautiful Country is a new memoir that's out right now. And that's pretty stunning as well. She tells this story with such a clinical simplicity that it sort of makes the horrors that she lived through even more acute. You know, to be an undocumented Chinese immigrant in New York in the 1990s, I can't imagine what that was like. And then these stories, like, this is the same city I lived in at the same time. Whoa, reality check, you know. And then, um, oh, I've got a couple arcs on my desk for books coming out in the spring that I'm trying to get through as well. That must be a fun part of your job. It really, really is. Um, it feels like Christmas every day we get those boxes. In fact, that's what we call it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, let's have Christmas morning. Um, but some of the ones I've read recently, see, The Inheritance of Orchidia Divina was a really fun one. Uh, Zorita Cordova is the author's name. She was a she did some YA books, to my understanding, and it was our book of the month. Um last month. So I I, I listened to it and it was a really, really great book. Lots of kind of magical realism. Um, My favorite novel of all time is Love in the Time of Cholera. I am a a sucker for big gooey romantic stories. And uh, this is in that kind of magical, uh, realistic realm. Okay. Maybe not at this, you know, it, it was a really, really great read. I really enjoyed it. Um, and what else? Fuzz by Mary Roach was a lot of fun. Um, oh, she's always so good. Yeah, that just that, that just uh, that just dropped a couple of weeks, two weeks ago, I think. Yeah. Um, and then Emily St. John Mandel's new book coming out in the spring kind of blew me away. La- yeah, Sea of Tranquility, it's called. Um, Post pandemic deals with pandemics. Ooh, I mm. yeah. Um, and then the other newer book that I loved and I've read cover to cover was. Um, Calm Toybin's new one, uh, The Magician. He's um, He wrote Brooklyn, right? Yes. Is he that? Who, yeah. Okay, so The Magician. Yeah. Tell me what that's about. Imagined life of the German author Thomas Mann's experience from when he was a kid in northern Germany to when he was in exile at the end of World War II. It, it's, a, it's a pretty thick book. I think it's one of the 500-page novels, and I read every page of it. It, was, it kept oh. me going. Yeah, really fascinating. Talks a lot about the intellectualization of ethics in times of great change in war and what it meant for him to be German and to what extent his homosexuality or bisexuality had anything to do with his family, his writing, his experience. It it hit a lot of really interesting points. And it was it was the first uh, first book of his that I read as well. And um, oh. it really got my brain going. 
<laughs> I can go on. Sa- uh, Sally Rooney's newest one. I loved it. And at the risk of sounding old, like I, you know, I, 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 it didn't make me feel old when I read it because oftentimes I try to read a lot of the novels written by the young, by the 20 somethings and 30 somethings. Yeah. And like, okay, cool. And without <laughs> wanting to be too much of a dick, like I remember feeling that way too. And then with yes. a little bit of space and a little bit of, you know, prioritization or however we want to word it, she's got a lot of really great insight in this book. And I, there's a lot of thought in this book and a lot of just, um, oh, it's very, it, it felt very real to me. I cannot tell you how much fun this has been. I hope you will come oh. back to the show anytime you have a book please. you want to talk to me about. Jeremy, would you please share with my listeners um, where they can find you online besides visiting the best bookstore in the world? <laughs> <laughs> and that's Tattered Cover. And that's uh, <laughs> tatteredcover.com in Denver, Colorado. Um, I have a personal website, uh, jeremypatlin.com, J-E-R-E-M-Y-P-A-T-L-E-N. And uh, that is uh, my photography and my stories over the years. And I, as I was trying to get my, continue to do photography as a side hustle and for my own passion, I've been told over the years, you have too much on your website, you have too much on your... Well, enjoy. I have almost every country I've ever visited, travels for the past couple of years, series I've done. I keep it up. Those are my stories. Um, That's how I've documented my life over the years, not necessarily with the journals I wish I would have kept after doing this, but uh, the places I've been and the people I've seen. So that's my website. And then I'm instantly findable on Instagram or Facebook as well. I want to thank you for joining me today. It has been so wonderful talking to you. And I hope you will come back anytime you want to talk books with me. Don't threaten me with a good time. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for listening, bookworms. For more information on this episode and links to all the books we discussed, go to our website, bestbookeverpodcast.com. You can also follow the podcast on Instagram at Best Book Ever Podcast. I'm your host, Julie Strauss, and you can find me everywhere as Julie Wrote a Book. If you loved this episode as much as I loved making it, why not leave a review wherever you're listening? Each review helps new listeners find my work, and I'm so grateful for your help. Thanks for joining me today, and I will see you at the library. Okay, my TBR. This is what happens when I talk to booksellers. I I hang out. (laughs) Sorry. Order everything. (laughs) Yeah.